0: On today's episode of Dance Med Spotlight, I'm interviewing Dr. Brooke Winder. She is a physical therapist who specializes in treating pelvic floor dysfunctions, more specifically within the dance community. Pelvic floor dysfunctions, pain, whatever you wanna describe, is something that is super common. She mentions some research that shows at least 30% of adult dancers suffer with some sort of pelvic floor dysfunction. It's something that is super common but is not talked about enough because either people are uncomfortable bringing it up maybe they're thinking it's something that they're the only one experiencing it maybe even from the clinician perspective maybe they're uncomfortable asking about some of these things but that said it all ties into not only how a dancer is performing but how they're doing things in their everyday life, in their normal day-to-day things. So whether you are a clinician treating dancers, a researcher, a dance educator, a dancer within the community, this is an episode that you do not want to miss and you want to be able to listen to the entire thing because there's so much good information that comes up that I hope everyone is able to walk away with, not just one tidbit, but several that can make an impact for themselves or for dancers that they work with. So be sure to check it out. Welcome back to another episode of Dance Med Spotlight, where we talk about all things dance medicine and dance science. Today, I am excited about my guest, Dr. Brooke Winder. We're gonna be talking about some stuff that I think is super interesting and very important that doesn't get talked about enough. But let's talk a little bit about who Brooke is. She is an associate professor in the dance program at California State University teaching in the dance science degree program. She has her own clinic, Renew Motion PT, working with folks with pelvic floor and ortho concerns, and then also is involved in all kinds of research. So help me welcome Brooke Winder.
1: Yay! Thanks for having me.
0: So Brooke, one of the things that I always like to start off with is tell me a little bit about I guess, what got you interested in the topic of pelvic health in dancers um, and why that's such an interest for you?
1: Sure. Um, A lot of it actually stems from my background, probably a similar story to a lot of people in dance medicine. Um, I was actually a competitive gymnast primarily first when I was really young, and then I got into dance. And um, I had pelvic floor issues when I was a teen and I never told anybody about them. Um, But when I was in gymnastics and been in it for several years and was competing at a high level and also starting to take dance, I would notice that I would randomly leak when I would land from a jump, and it wouldn't happen all the time. Um, And it was quite embarrassing. It was something that as a teen, I just felt like it was not happening to anyone else. Um, So I never really said anything about it, kind of managed it. And then the symptoms eventually sort of dissipated as I got a little bit older. And um, so I remember having that experience and it being really, really, something that affected me. And it wasn't until I um, you know, I got my undergraduate degree in dance. So I was a performer. I performed for um, a company in Southern California for a few years. And then I decided to become a physical therapist. And I learned a little bit about the pelvic floor in our PT program. I think programs now teach a lot more than they used to. Um, but when I was in school, it was sort of this aside. And I had a couple classmates that started doing rotations, looking at the pelvic floor. So I always thought it was interesting, but I just didn't really know enough about it. Um, but when I first got into practicing as a PT, I primarily saw a lot of athletes and non-athletes, performers and non-performers with back and hip issues. And a lot of really complex stuff came my way. And if you're treating the back of the hip, the pelvic floor is Right in between the two. Um, and I ended up at a clinic where I worked with a pelvic floor PT who also did orth- orthopedic um, work as well. And I started co-treating with her and my patients who were having hip and low back issues. Um, we'd also discover things going on with their pelvic floor. And that really opened my eyes to this whole area that was hugely important, um, but that I just hadn't had the opportunity to learn about in school. And so I started to take more classes. Um, So I went to continuing ed and learned more about how to assess the pelvic floor and start treating. Um, And that kind of came full circle and brought me back to my own experiences because kind of through the years, I did start talking to other performers that were having pelvic floor related symptoms. We can talk about what those are, of course. And it was happening to people, but it was kind of like no one was really talking about it on a bigger scale. So that's how I got interested in this very sort of niche area of pelvic floor dysfunction in performers.
0: Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And. A couple of things that you mentioned where it's just like, you know, there's like bells going off in my head for one reason or another of, um, you know, yes, I think there's so many of us that are in this space that have had bad experiences ourselves often um, that kind of made us interested in helping people with some similar things. I remember similar experiences growing up as a dancer and having things like, you know, leaking and that kind of thing and just being like, well, this this is just what my body does. I don't
1: know. Mm -hmm.
0: And then, yeah, I was, I was kind of in the same place when I was going into PT school where it was almost like it was mentioned that this was a topic, but that was sort of it when I was going through the school. Um, and so it's, I love that it's starting to be included more, but I think, I think all of us need to know at least something more about pelvic floor stuff for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a bit, okay, so we're, we're starting off kind of ground zero here. Tell us about the pelvic floor and sort of the functions of what it does for us.
1: Yeah. So, um, I'll talk mostly from kind of more the musculoskeletal perspective about what it does because it can be a really complex area. So the pelvic floor is really considered the area around the base of your pelvis. And if we think about the muscles of the pelvic floor, they're the muscles that are spanning the bottom of your pelvis, basically from front to back. So from your pubic bone to your tailbone, and then from side to side, basically between your deep hips, or the best way to think about it is side to side between your sits bones. So it actually forms this, this hammock-like structure, if you can imagine that, that is is sort of parallel to your diaphragm above that kind of creates this umbrella. And the muscles are responsible for lots of things. Um, so there are several functions of the area. One of the biggest things that I think A lot of people might know about already is just their function and continence or basically closing the openings of your body and then um, opening those openings when you want. So it keeps the, the urine and your bowel movements in when you want them to stay in, and then the muscles relax in order for you to have a bowel movement or in order for you to urinate. Um, They also serve lots of other functions too. So they're really important in terms of sexual arousal and sexual function. They're important in support. So not just the muscles, but all of the fascia and connective tissue structures around there support your organs. So they've holding your uterus if you have one, holding up the bladder, holding the rectum, holding up the prostate if you have them. Um, And then there's also a stability function of the pelvic floor. So they really span across the pelvis to support kind of that whole ring of your pelvis and help the pelvis transfer forces from your lower body to your upper body. And then the area is also known as a sump pump. And that that essentially means is that the pelvic floor and all of um, its movement essentially helps with fluid movement from your lower body into your upper body. And then the muscles are also interactive with things that we do every day, like breathing. So when we breathe, our pelvic floor also moves and linked to that would be helping with management of pressure through your whole abdominal cavity. So when you cough, when you sneeze, when you land from a jump, when you have a Valsalva or you breath hold, your pelvic floor responds to that by trying to help everybody else, your abs, your back, your diaphragm, manage the pressure that that's within the container of your trunk.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's so good good to have like that refresher of what all the pelvic floor can do for us. Because I think a lot of people really do just think of, you know, kind of that first category of managing mm-hmm. continence and that's maybe it. Um, but we don't appreciate how involved it is in like everything that our body <laughs>
1: does. Yeah. And I think what's cool about that is that even if you're, you know, a clinician who's maybe interested in this area, but it's not something that you ever would intend to specialize in helping, there's actually a lot that you can do with your performers that is related to its function that can help with optimizing pelvic health and also, you know, incorporating the pelvic floor into other things that you do so that you can optimize breathing or you can optimize core stability.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. What are some things that you know? Maybe a performer might notice in themselves as far as symptoms or a little sign of like, hmm, maybe there's something going on here that I should get checked out.
1: Yeah, um, a lot of the symptoms are, are kind of in a in a way related to the functions. Um, we could kind of put them into categories. So there's there's the maybe the most one of the more distressing symptoms, which is leaking of any kind, and that could be leaking urine, that could be um, having difficulty controlling gas or bowels. Um, So leaking is something that is relatively common. We can talk a little bit about some of the studies that are starting to come out about our populations. And that could be something like a little bit of dribble when you land from a jump. It could be you cough or sneeze and you leak a little bit, or it could be a lot of leaking. Um, It could also present in a way where you feel like you have to go to the bathroom really strongly. So I have to pee, I have to pee. And you might not feel like you can make it to the bathroom and you have a little bit of leakage before you get there. That's known as. Urge incontinence. Um, and that can be a really, really common symptom that's distressing for people as well. So there's the leakage category that might highlight for someone that 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 there's something to work on there. Um, there's also pressure symptoms. So um, pressure symptoms can be sort of this feeling like either my organs feel like they're pushing out, I feel something coming out. I feel someone has a vagina, there's something like pushing out when they go to the bathroom, or it can feel like you have this tampon falling out feeling, but that's not, there's not even a tampon in. Um, Those pressure symptoms can present for lots of reasons, but some of them might be related to something known as pelvic organ prolapse, where there's some laxity of the connective tissues that have affected the support of your organs and where they sit in the body. Um, And then there's a pain category and pain of course is, so complicated, Um, but pelvic pain can present in lots of ways, so it can be tailbone pain or pain with sitting, and that could be something that maybe started for a performer after you fell into the tailbone, Um, and then that tailbone pain is not really resolving the way that it should, and it's kind of maybe even spreading out from that area. Um, It could be having pain with bowel movements or pain that's relieved by going to the bathroom um, or even pain anywhere else on the perineum. So that whole fleshy area that basically is your pelvic floor that would contact a surface when you're sitting. Um, Any area of pain around there can be related to the pelvic floor, and that includes genital pain as well. Um, So the pain symptoms, of course, can be super distressing because um, a lot of people might not know the right physician to talk to about this issue. Um, and it can feel like just such a personal intimate area that can also include pain with sex um, or sexual activity. Um, and some low back, hip and leg pain and glute pain can actually be pain referred from the pelvic floor. Um, so the pelvic floors kind of can be a little deceptive that way, just like other areas of the back and the hip. Mm-hmm. And I would say those are some of the Kind of main things that that might clue someone in to a problem being related to the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm.
0: I know clinically thinking as a PT who works whether it's dancers or non-dancers, I'm definitely not somebody who's you know trained in treating pelvic floor dysfunction or anything like that or assessing it. But I have definitely found when I've had some cases of low back pain, hip pain, things like that, and it's like. We're doing a lot of the things that usually help and like they're yeah. they're getting better but it, if there's just something missing we're not completely taking care of it. I referred to a pelvic therapist then and that's like the magic that unlocked whatever was going on. And so, you know, when those times have happened, it's like, "All right, I need to get on my continuing ed list some of these pelvic floor things because I've definitely over time been appreciating more and more how important it is to have some of that in the toolbox.
1: Yeah. And I think that's such a good point to remind us that it often is something where they're not responding as expected and particularly in the low back or the hip or SI joint pain, or even what a performer might perceive and even starts to present as like a proximal hamstring strain that is not calming down and it's still bugging them with sitting. And there may be that issue, but there's so many muscles that attach and there's so many fascial attachments that that may have sort of creeped in to also include the pelvic floor. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great thing for people just to remember.
0: I guess this would be a good time also to kind of ask for people who aren't familiar, which I think includes a lot of the medical community. um, What is pelvic floor physical therapy? What might that look like? And what all might it encompass too?
1: So um, pelvic floor physical therapy, or there's actually a lot of occupational therapists that also treat the pelvic floor as well. So if we think about, um, you know, pelvic floor specific training, um, it's usually provided by a rehab professional who's taken specific coursework to learn how to specifically evaluate the pelvic floor, and that might include um, an internal exam. I talk about that in a moment. Um, so. In many ways, the initial part of a session with someone like me who does pelvic floor physio um, is going to look a lot like other physical therapy. So we're going to chat. We're going to talk about orthopedic injuries in other areas. Um, So very, very similar to visiting a physical therapist for your knee, for example. Um, But of course, some of the questions on the paperwork and some of the questions we talk about are just going to feel a little bit more intimate or something that you might not be used to talking about, um, unless maybe you've been to a gynecologist or a urogynecologist or a urologist. Um, And so there'll be more questions about um, specifically with menstruation, if you're a menstruating person, um, specifically about sexual function, specifically about leaking, some of those symptoms that I talked um, about earlier. And then um, we'll typically look at the whole body, just like any other physio or any other movement therapist would. Um, so we're gonna look, um, we're not gonna dive right into the pelvic floor. We're usually gonna look at how someone's breathing, moving, walking, dancing, um, and or anything that might be bothersome to them. Um, and it's we understand typically that it can feel um, maybe much less comfortable to just start with the pelvic floor. Um, and then we usually will pull out our pelvic floor model and show, Um, our patient the anatomy and talk about what an internal exam would look like. So um, for example, if I'm working with someone who has a vagina and I'm going to um, recommend an internal exam for them, it's always, um, and same thing if I go in rectally as well, it's always with that patient's consent. So I think it's important for people to know that pelvic floor physical therapy does not have to involve an internal exam. It doesn't have to, but that may be beneficial. And so we always talk about that with the patient um, and make sure that they feel comfortable and we get their consent um, to do that. If we talk about, you know, what how that might benefit them. So um, you know, then we step out of the room. The patient gets to um, usually just dress down however they're comfortable. And then they're always draped, they're always covered. And if they want someone else in the room to make them feel more comfortable, that's always an opportunity for them too. So I think those are important things to know when someone's coming to expect um, what it should be like. You should you know, always be asked for consent. Your consent can be removed at any time. You can always ask to have someone else in the room to make you feel more comfortable as well. And you can always say, no, I prefer not to have an internal exam um but if you have an internal exam we um you know we use a gloved digit or two um and we're talking through the anatomy and usually um i will be looking externally at their pelvic floor and that's often just to look at whether there's any skin irritation or anything that i feel like might need to be referred to uh, and a, a urogynecologist, for example, that's something that might be out of my scope that doesn't seem like a muscle issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the reason that we do the internal exam is vaginally or rectally, it is easier for us to feel specific muscles and reach to the muscles that attach deep within the pelvis or near the tailbone. And then we can assess to see if those are painful. We can assess to see exactly which muscles are painful and teach patients about that because we can teach you how to work on it. your muscles yourself. Um, And then we'll also feel um, how your contraction might feel. So if you try to do a kegel um, or contract the pelvic floor, we're going to feel how strong that feels. We're going to be able to know um, how long you can hold that and what areas of the pelvic floor. So sometimes people have more trouble in the front or the back of the pelvic floor muscles, for example. And so that's a really nice opportunity to teach people how to sense what's going on in their own pelvic floor, sense where things might be tight or might also be reproducing the symptoms that they're experiencing, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Based on that information, we might assign some specific strengthening to the pelvic floor, or a lot of the times we're also teaching people how to relax or lengthen the pelvic floor, which is a common thing that a lot of our performers need to learn to improve their function. Um, And then that will also involve um, any other types of exercise and strengthening for the whole body. Um, yeah, that's kind of a, a short or not so short summary of what might happen during a public floor visit.
0: I think all of that is so helpful to know because like you said, it is an intimate area, an area that there may be you know, some trauma around or fear mm-hmm. around or something like that. And so just having an idea of what the heck this might look like, knowing that there are options all of that sort of thing I think is so important for people who are either referring to
1: someone like you
0: or Mm -hmm. a potential client coming to you as well.
1: And I, um, with the virtual (laughs) treatment world kind of growing so much as these past few years um, have expanded that, I actually see a lot of People virtually. And so that type of interaction obviously looks very different. And I'm usually just showing them on a model, having them maybe step into the bathroom and do some assessment on themselves, and then coming back out and telling me what they find and what they learn. So there's lots of ways for people to access pelvic floor specific care, which I think is really important for so many of our performers who travel or might not be able to find someone in the area that they can also learn a lot through. Virtual PT um, and non internal treatments as well, in order to get things started.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. One thing that you mentioned while you were talking through that—that that I want to go back to because I know it's—it's it's such a thing that comes up. Um, people often, when anytime we talk about pelvic floor muscles or you know how we engage certain muscles, people are very familiar with the concept of Kegels. Mm-hmm. But I think it is something that everyone defaults to as like, this is just something everyone should do and would benefit from. Can we talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, I think it's interesting because I've also been seeing this kind of as things do, like the pendulum keeps swinging where we get all about Kegels. And then um, in some camps now I'm seeing that like Kegels are becoming the enemy. So I think it's really helpful to talk about it for people that that might be new to it. Um, so Kegels, as a reminder, is just a term for a contraction of the pelvic floor. And so, um, you know, you're right, as you're saying, it it kind of for a long time seemed to become this, the one thing that maybe a lot of people did know about. And so if you were leaking, you'd think, okay, I probably, maybe I have some weakness. I guess I should be doing more kegels. Um, And like everything else in the body, it's often maybe not as simple as that um, because, just like any other muscles, yes, you do need to contract and you do need strength and endurance of those muscles. Um, But a Kegel is typically practicing a contraction in isolation. Um, So one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that just like any other muscle, your pelvic floor muscles also need to be able to lengthen and relax. And if you are not really well practiced in that, that can actually, interfere with your ability to contract your muscles with good coordination. So let's say, for example, um, your pelvic floor muscles are really tend toward tensing. You actually might not even realize that you kind of are holding a kegel more than you need to you're not going to sense that. That's going to feel very normal for your body. Um, But if they're already tense, and then you're trying to squeeze and contract them more, and they're never going through that relaxation phase, the biggest um, kind of correlate people use is imagine that you're always in a bicep curl with your elbow, and you're always just holding the weight with the elbow tight. You're never practicing going the other way. You're actually not using all of your strength and length. So if that's the case, a lot of times you're trying to Maybe shut a door that's already closed, <laughs> and you can feel a little incoordinated. So, some people actually might be leaking because their weakness also has to do with problems lengthening or problems going through that whole length. Um, so, some patients, and particularly with my performers who tend toward strength or tend toward already getting lots of cues to say, pull up and in with your body, they probably need to learn more how to lengthen first. It doesn't mean that a kegel is wrong for them, but that might not be the thing that solves our problem. They might need to also add the length piece and the, what we call dialing down piece. Um, and then the other thing is that we're starting to see that there's lots of ways that you can encourage the pelvic floor to do what it needs to do in whole body function, not just by sitting and doing 100 kegels at the stoplight, though some people might benefit from that. Um, Sometimes that might worsen some people's symptoms though, Um, but you could also really be strengthening your pelvic floor through whole body strengthening, like doing deadlifts and doing squats and incorporating breathing and pelvic floor awareness into that. So
0: mm-hmm. I think if
1: people can just know that it's not just kegels that could be helpful, it's also lengthening strategies and relaxation strategies that could be helpful, as well as whole body strengthening that incorporates that, that might even be more beneficial for a certain, certain performer.
0: Mm-hmm. It also makes me think about, so I actually was at your presentation at I Adams this last year in Ireland when we were talking about, you know, how can we engage and bring awareness to pelvic floor and using things like some of the vocalization as we're doing movement and things like that. And what was really interesting to me was my own experience during that session. So Mm -hmm. I was presenting, I think a little bit later that day and I was starting to get nervous about it. And I, you know, anxiety is already a thing for me. And so I was starting to feel it during your guys' session. And I was almost to this point of like, I might need to step out soon to just like go get air and have some space and do whatever I need to do. But I was really interested in what you all were talking about. It's like no, I need to stay, and I, I want to try this. I want to check this out. So we went through the activities that you did, and as soon as we did the stretching to kind of like get things to loosen up a little bit, I just felt that anxiety just go. Phew. And I was like, wait a second, <laughs> I didn't know that this was an area where I held tension. I always thought it was just like upper back and neck, but hey, yeah. and so that was a fascinating discovery for myself and something that I have definitely gone back to too, where, you know, even where I hold tension in those anxious moments, pelvic floor is one of them for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, what that's such a cool discovery and thank you for sharing. Um, it. What's so interesting, and I remind patients of this and other clinicians is, so the pelvic floor region of the body receives direct direction from our parasympathetic and our sympathetic nervous system because it has, it's so involved in the control of automatic functions like urination, for example. And so when our nervous system is maybe driving that sympathetic fight-flight-freeze response when we're feeling anxious, it would make sense that the pelvic floor might hold more tension, just like we hold tension anywhere. Like you were talking about, like if you are a jaw clencher, you know, you can you can tend very naturally to clench the pelvic floor, and it would be a pretty typical response of your more stressed nervous system. And it's so cool how we can go through the body to get that and kind of trick our body to go back into another state and kind of get that parasympathetic or calming drive. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think that's such a a great thing to bring up. That's really helpful because um, for a lot of performers who might be dealing with pelvic pain or even leakage, and they think they might be holding tension, just being aware of that and starting to notice whether you feel like you're clenching, notice what happens when you do some relaxation strategies, which we could talk about more. Um, It actually can make a really big difference just to make that connection for people. So a lot mm-hmm. of our performers are are working in such a high stress environments, clinicians too. Um, we tend to, you know, be achievers. We tend to be perhaps a little perfectionistic um, and have lots of, of things that drive us, but that also might tend us toward being in a kind of a more active state. Um, and a lot of times that that could pair with, with a very active pelvic floor. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was very interesting experiencing that. And like, hmm, I'm glad I I stayed and didn't decide to go outside because yeah. it ended up being exactly what my body needed, apparently. Yeah. Um
1: <laughs>
0: let's talk a little bit about um, you know, thinking of our dancers, going back to something that you mentioned a minute ago of I think so often there is that cue for dancers, especially thinking ballet. Um, of pull up and in or tuck your hips or, you know, like different cues that we get for holding our body in space
1: yeah. and how that
0: might not be the best cueing or way to engage some of those muscles.
1: So, yeah. Did you have a follow-up? Or no? Go for it. Um, Yeah, so it's interesting. So I, I work, um, you know, in a dance department, I coordinate the dance science major. So I work with a lot of college level dancers a lot. And, um, you know, it's always interesting to hear, um, we, we have students who come from kind of a pretty wide variety of genres of dance that they train in. Um, Some of them have maybe had a lot of ballet and some of them come from a lot of street dance forms. And so I always kind of survey and I usually have at least a sprinkling of students who have been trained with a cue in one form or another to pull up and in Um, and do feel like it's common in ballet um, in particular. But I've heard from lots of different, you know, experiences that dancers have had. Um, And I certainly think it comes from this this. Well intentioned place of like we want students to stabilize and we want our dancers to kind of know how to quote hold their center, um, especially when so many dancers are tend toward being maybe hypermobile or um, you know trying to figure out how to how to control everything in their alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's it for some dancers it seems to lead to this like very stiff breath-holdy life that they live. Um, Like if I am imagining in ballet, they're trying to hold as much turnout as possible. And so now they're clenching their butt and tucking their butt under. That actually shortens the pelvic floor, grips the pelvic floor, just because those muscles are actually attached. So your pelvic floor muscle is attached to your deep turnout muscle, your obturator internus. So there's a direct attachment. That muscle is a turnout muscle. So if you're Mm -hmm. winding that on and you're clenching your butt, you're probably Doing a lot of clenching with your pelvic floor just because it's naturally going to respond, um, and then the sucking, drawing in, um, our pelvic floor is supposed to work together with the deep abdominal wall. Like it's supposed to come together. So often they're they're zipping up together, um, and then the dancer might be left feeling like, well, where am I supposed to breathe because <laughs> I'm sucking yeah. everything in? Um, so they're not really. Like letting their diaphragm move that as much as it could. Um, I see that strategy as a habit for some dancers. It just probably doesn't help their pelvic floor. That's kind of the the bottom line. And so we try to explore ways. I always look for ideas for my students. Like how else might you visualize this when you hear a teacher say, pull up and in, they want you to control your center. Mm -hmm. But you can still do that by breathing or just making sure that you're maybe visualizing your bones, like just keep your ribs stacked on top of your pelvis, but you don't actually have to think about what muscles should do that. It's too hard to think about that anyway in bigger movements. Um, and I kind of try to get them to think about more of a dynamic cue. Like, it's it's not just supposed to be held one way the whole time. Like, then you're just a stiff pencil that could just fall over at any moment versus kind of this dynamic responder to movement. So, I, you know, we mm-hmm. think about maybe more of like a jellyfish cue with your pelvic floor that it's going to naturally respond and let it naturally respond. You don't have to pull it up all the time, um, mm-hmm. it can move and groove, and that actually is probably going to allow you a little more breath, um, or or we just explore breathing differently. So, so yeah, I'm I tend toward not being a big fan of of that stiff pulling in cue, um, and I think particularly for those performers who. like, yeah, I'm going to take this cue and I'm going to do it 150%. That's where I feel like it it is the least helpful, where some students might hear that and it it doesn't necessarily affect them in that stiffening way.
0: Mm -hmm. I think I also, I mean, I've experienced it myself growing up as a dancer and have definitely seen it in my performers that I work with of having difficulty with that breathing piece too, Where whether it's because we're learning some of those cues and kind of going a little too far with some of them maybe sometimes, or also thinking costuming, if it's something where, you know, it's almost like a corseted type of thing and it's not letting a lot of rib movement happen. Um, yeah. And so it's either holding breath or it's very much that like top of the chest breathing yeah. and not much else happening down below. And whether it's just feeling like, like they're out of breath and affected in that way, or it contributes to anxiety or or panic or that sort of thing that yeah. they experience performing and competing as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. And, you know, it can be such a a nice practice for our performers, even if they don't have a public floor specific Problem going on, um, breathing's so central to what they do, and it's going to help your pelvic floor anyway. It's <laughs> um, mm-hmm. just getting our performers when they're off stage, when they're outside of of their dance classes, um, just doing some simple meditative breathing strategies, yoga breathing, getting their rib cage moving, letting their belly soften. Just giving them permission to, like your belly does not have to be held in. I mean, I wish I could tell society that. Um, We don't all day need to hold in our bellies, um, that they can move. Um, But just those little practices, I think are so helpful for them. And then for performers sometimes to just, let's say you have taken a lot of forms that tend to make you really grip. It's the thing you wanna achieve in. is actually just expanding your training, like maybe just taking um, taking a a class that gets you more grounded, lets you kind of squat deeper, and let let your like booty move, mm-hmm. and let you breathe a different way, where you maybe. Um, are less familiar, but you maybe don't feel the same pressure to achieve, sometimes that can be really helpful too in, in getting dancers to learn a new breathing strategy where they still get to do something fun. They're still dancing. So sometimes it can be as, as um, maybe a simple assignment as just take a form that you, you don't feel attached to having to be super good at and you can kind of laugh at yourself and you can breathe differently and move differently. Every once in a while that can also kind of help them loosen up a different way.
0: Hmm. I know one strategy I've sometimes used for myself too, because I was always that like breath holder coming off stage and going, oh, why can't I breathe? <laughs> um, you know, now I do a form of dance called West Coast Swing. And there are certain times where it's like when my arm is going up or when I'm turning or things like that, consciously going that's a chance to inhale. As like it's already making things kind of expand a little bit. And so especially when I'm in maybe competition mode and recognizing I'm starting to go into that breath holding thing, it's like, ooh, yeah. here's a time where I can get one of those yeah. breaths in.
1: Yeah, that's so great.
0: Let's kind of shift gears a little bit um, and talk about... So we've talked about some of the symptoms that performers or People in general might experience that. Could be an indication of something going on with the pelvic floor. But how common is that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, as mentioned before, research is my other my other <laughs> home, um, and kind of from the standpoint of what's already out there, there's there's Quite a bit of research has been done on athletes, female identifying athletes who are not performing artists. There's a lot of data that's come out showing that in systematic reviews, roughly a third or a little more than a third of relatively young athletes, um, most of whom have never had a baby, um, because that can be a risk factor for pelvic floor issues. But about a third of them experience leakage of some kind. Um, And so we need more data on dancers specifically. There is some data showing that artistic gymnasts have at least about that same percentage or even more. And that's even starting in the teens. Um, A pretty significant number are leaking. Um, But my colleagues and I, um, so Mandy Blackman and Carrie Lindegren, who worked on the study with me, we surveyed um, over 200 professional dancers And their average age was fairly young. They're in their 20s. And about 34, 35% of them were leaking. So at least that's kind of similar to what we're finding in other athletes. And a third Mm -hmm. is a lot. It is. Um, It's quite a bit. And their leakage that they reported um, in general wasn't super severe. It wasn't something that was happening necessarily all the time or to a great degree, but it was happening consistently enough. Um, What also was really significant for us was over 40% of our dancers also reported having a history of pain with sexual activity or intercourse. So that's almost half. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something our primary outcome on that study was looking at leakage. And so we didn't ask a really expansive amount of questions on pain, but there's a pain experience happening. that seems to be quite common. So it's something we'd wanna investigate further. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do have some data. So I'm working with um, a couple of other colleagues, Heather Heinemann and uh, Emily Sherb, we're doing a study on circus performers. So we don't have, we presented a little bit of our data at the recent Performing Arts Medicine Association Conference, uh, but we have a lot more to weed through. Um, But most of the people who responded were aerialists Mm-hmm. yeah most were female identifying aerialists and their leakage rates were a little bit higher um, closer to a little over 40% so um, so we were seeing it in the performing arts and i think i think it's important for performers to then at least know it's they're not alone if they're yes. experiencing this that it is a common thing and it's just because it common it's common doesn't necessarily mean you have to live with it it just means you're not alone Um, And so, I think we need to do a lot of work to figure out exactly why it's happening. Um, We know that high-impact sport seems to be correlated with leakage, Um, just if you jump and land or do something high-impact, but we don't really know why that is. We just know it's correlated. Um, And there's probably lots of other factors we could talk about that we're guessing could be involved in the experience. but. yeah, it's happening out there, and it's important for performers to know that it is. Um, the good news is that there is a lot of research that supports pelvic floor specific training that could be strengthening, coordination, lengthening activities. Any of that actually is very well supported in helping to manage symptoms of leakage, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, th- yeah, those numbers are high for how frequently it happens, and it's not just one or two random performers that are, are saying this. And so if you are having any of those symptoms or concerns where it's like, hmm, is, is this just to you? Um, yeah. And that there are folks like you who are able to help work with them and assess and give them some tips and tricks and things like that to try to get through all of that too.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. What are, let's see, how do I want to ask it? I guess, do you have any other tips, tricks, ideas that you would want to share with dancers that they might be able to integrate for themselves beyond what we've already mentioned?
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, I have lots. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, Oh, the other thing that I think is so cool about working with pelvic floors and people with them <laughs> is that the health of your pelvic floor region is actually really highly linked to the health, your general health, for example. So um, so things that that performers can think about, that dancers can think about, um, would actually start with, with basics that are gonna help them overall as a performer. Um, having healthy bowel movements is actually really, really um, important. And that mostly has to do with trying to find a way to manage stress, hydrating enough, just drinking enough water, and getting appropriate nutrition, like enough fiber, enough vegetables, um, enough nutrition to support what you do. Um, And that, that goes along with concerns we have for a lot of dancers with things like Low energy availability or reds. Um, it's a population we know that's really at risk for not getting enough nutrition um, mm-hmm. because there's so much that that is wrapped into our culture in dance. Um, and so I would say for any dancer that is just not sure if they're getting enough nutrition or they're doing the right thing, if they have the opportunity to talk to a registered dietitian, someone that has the expertise in knowing how to fuel an athlete. Not just a random human <laughs> that has no credentials that they found on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to my students a lot about that. Um, that, that, because some dancers might be getting too much fiber or not enough, like that can really stop you up. And mm-hmm. constipation is very common in athletes just because we're often stressing our bodies or traveling, things like that, um, that can actually make bladder symptoms feel more irritated um, because your rectum sits right by your bladder. So if your rectum is just full and you're not emptying well and that's irritated your your urgency, like gotta go, gotta go symptoms or your leakage sometimes can be perpetuated. So getting your bowels moving. is actually really helpful. Um, so, you know, that's stress management, hydrating, and eating enough to fuel you as an athlete. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's something that's going to help a performer in all aspects of their, their life. Um, so I think that's actually huge. Um, getting enough sleep also helps your digestion and helps you get on a regular schedule and kind of thinking about that, um, you know, before you travel, I think um, can be helpful to just um, planning ahead and making sure that you have your calming strategies and all of that and that you, you know, bring an eye mask if you need to get better sleep when you travel. Things like that can be huge. Um, so that nutrition piece is a, actually a really big one. Um, mm-hmm. The other piece that will help dancers in the rest of their life um, is actually cross-training and getting strong for what they do. Um, When I look kind of more from my clinician, my PT perspective, um, it could be that your pelvic floor is maybe taking the brunt of things or not able to manage things because the rest of your body is overloaded in what you do. And if your legs become strong enough and powerful enough to handle impact, and if your upper body and your core have enough strength to actually handle what you do, you're going to get fatigued less quickly, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the thing I always try to convince my college students is like, there's lots of things you can do to not get so tired. Um, and we've seen in studies that when, when the pelvic floor is fatigued, just like any other muscle, it actually can't contract as well. I mean, that's not probably surprising. So mm-hmm. if you can have a body overall that has good strength and power to handle what you do, legs, arms, core, all of it. It doesn't have to be specific to the pelvic floor. It is going to help your pelvic floor and it's going to help your dancing. So I like to bring up those two things first because I think it's what dancers need anyway, even if they're not super concerned about a pelvic floor thing happening. Um, But it can make a huge difference.
0: Definitely. And one of the ways I often kind of think about it too is like, you know, thinking of particularly kind of lower body as an example and around the Mm -hmm. hips and things. We have so many muscles in that area that are anatomically large muscles with a lot of mass that are capable of doing so much work. But if we don't strengthen them well and don't utilize them well, then we're relying on all the little guys to do as much as they can. And there's only so much they can do when they're that little. And so, you know, being able, like maximize what the muscles are able to do and then it distributes that workload a little bit better um, Mm -hmm. and doesn't stress out the little guys so much.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think that's such a good way to put it. And And that kind of makes me think as well. So if you're a dancer, for example, that works in turnout a lot to train turning in you know, or take a form where you're turning in more, um, or do some specific exercises so that you're not just winding your hip capsule and your muscles in one direction. Um, because if you start to take that hip into its full range and you gain strength into that full range, that can help your pelvic floor sort of through its anatomical connections. So just making sure that you have that balanced strength. Um, and for a lot of our performers that, um, You know, depending what world you grow up in, where you train, um, there might be a lot of aesthetic pressure to push your hips past maybe what your hip was meant to do anatomically, and um, just being thoughtful about that, I think that's something you know, dance educators can can work on. Is like, you know, there's not really that much time spent efficiently and just pushing someone into a range of motion that they have no strength to control. And mm-hmm. I think if performers can know that there, there might be some ways they can modify like a passive stretch into an extreme range and actually turn it into a strength exercise or learn how to support that. Because when the hip is really stressed, it can be that the public floor just might react to that and have pain or gripping or some type of symptoms because it's trying to protect its neighbor. So if you're good to the neighbor, you're good to the public floor too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Anything else that you think is maybe kind of like a key um, thought or cue for dancers that might be helpful?
1: I would say maybe going back to the thinking of your your trunk and your pelvic floor as as not like a rigid structure, going back to that idea, thinking about jellyfish movement, thinking about um, you only need to produce enough tension that that is for the activity at hand. So like, you don't need to be super tensed all the time if you're just standing there. I see so many dancers, like they're like in position and they're holding everything super tight. And I'm like, well, you're just holding your body weight up. You do that all day, every day when you're talking to your friends and you're not thinking about it. So you can dial that back and actually maybe think of matching, like let it ebb and flow and gather tension when you're gonna do something hard, like lift a partner or support a human or land. You might be able to to need a little more attention, but a lot of the times you can sort of imagine your sits bones like spreading and coming back together. You can imagine your abs tensing if you're gonna lift someone and then let yourself breathe when you don't have a lot going on. So I guess maybe that dynamic sort of jellyfishy imagery mm-hmm. versus the suck it up and in um, is r- hugely helpful for a lot of dancers.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah, and I like that image of the jellyfish. That's, I think that's such a, an accessible image for people to think about, too. Yeah. All right. At this point, I want to introduce a special segment that we have on Dance Med Spotlight. So we have the final bow. Essentially, what this is, is if people have been listening to this episode, we've been talking about a lot of different things, a lot of really great information. What is the one thing that you want people to walk away with? Whether it is a clinician, a researcher, a dancer, you can choose who you want to talk to, uh, but what's the one thing you want someone to walk away with?
1: Well... (laughs) Ooh, it's so hard to choose one. (laughs) Um, I think I would reinforce what we were actually just talking about, which is um, to dancers. You do not have to hold your pelvic floor and your abs in to hold your core tight (laughs) all the time. It restricts your breathing. It is actually not as efficient, you run out of air easier, and it's not the greatest thing for your pelvic floor. So I would encourage dancers to take that cue in differently in their minds, if they're being maybe cued to hold everything tight and still and pull their belly button in, to envision that more dynamic in their mind and to think about their pelvic floor, their breathing, their diaphragm, like that jellyfish and let things ebb and flow Um, because the number of issues I see people develop from that rigid pattern um, it's often not helpful. So I would say that's my biggest thing is that your pelvic floor and your core do not just need to pull up, they also need to soften. It also needs to respond to your activity. Um, So you can let it go a little bit sometimes.
0: Yeah. Then what I also want to do is as sort of like the final bit that we talk about, this is your chance to do your shameless plug, promote anything you want to promote to the audience that might be listening. So feel free to share anything that you would like for things going on with you.
1: Sure. Um, let's see. So for clinicians, so if you're a clinician who... Um, doesn't have a pelvic floor background, but just wants to maybe expand your ability to help performers and you're not necessarily interested in learning internal treatment of the pelvic floor, I actually have a continuing education course that's available online um, through Embodia. If you go to my Instagram and go to my link tree, you can link to it there. Um, it is 18-plus hours of content, and I I, um, collaborated with my friends at Pivot Dancer um, to create this course. So it's for clinicians who are already treating orthopedic conditions and treating performers specifically, but want to incorporate strategies to help the pelvic floor um, that don't involve internal treatment, and there's a lot you can do. Um, So you can check that out if that's something that clinicians are interested in learning more about. Um, for dancers, I, um, I do have, um, I treat dancers. So if someone's looking for pelvic floor care, um, my business is called Renew Motion PT. And, um, I do a lot of virtual care. So I do wellness outside of the state of California and I can do wellness and or PT if someone resides in California. And that's, there's a lot that can be done with virtual care. I tend to work with people who want to maybe see me. Once and then go away with a program for three or four weeks and be really self-accountable, and then come back and really you know use me as as your guide. Um, so I work with performers that way. That's probably the best way to reach. You can also find that in my link tree on Instagram, and then I will also plug um, the dance science program I run at Cal State Long Beach. Um, we're we're one of the only undergraduate dance science programs um, in the U.S. There are a few, but we're really the only one on the West coast of the US. Um, So if dancers are thinking about college and thinking about maybe going into PT um, or athletic training or any related healthcare field, it's a great major to set you on that path. Um, And you can check that out um, at uh, the dance program at CSULB. And it's our dance science degree.
0: Awesome, yeah, I love that that even exists as an option now. I wish that existed back in the day or that I knew about it uh, because I probably would have done something like that, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I,
1: I wish that too.
0: Well, thank you so much, Brooke, for your time today. I've really appreciated all of your expertise and insight. And I know I learned a lot in our conversation as well. So I hope everyone gets some really good information when they watch this back.
1: Awesome, thanks so much, Alyssa.
0: Dance Med Spotlight is hosted and produced by Alyssa Arms. We discuss all things dance medicine. This has been another episode from Dance Med Spotlight. The Dance Med Spotlight is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present.